Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to a History of Europe Picky Battles podcast. My name is Carl Weilert and today I'll be continuing the story of the First World War. So far we've talked about the origins of the First World War and the conduct of the war up until the end of 1917. Today we move on to the final year of the war, 1918. On the 22nd of December 1917, a peace conference began at the fortress city of Brest-Litovsk, then the German military headquarters on the Eastern Front. In attendance on one side were 14 of the high-ranking delegates of the Central Powers, with representatives from Germany, Austro-Hungary, the Ottoman Empire and Bulgaria. On the other was a delegation of Bolsheviks, a radical left-wing group which had just recently seized control of St. Petersburg. The latter consisted of 28 members, including workers, soldiers, sailors, women and a peasant. The Germans and their allies had never seen anything like it at a formal diplomatic meeting. The Germans sought to conclude war on the Eastern Front as quickly as possible, while at the same time trying to establish an informal empire in East Central Europe one composed of newly independent nation-states on Russia's western periphery, Poland, Ukraine, Lithuania, Estonia, Courland, Finland, Livonia and Bessarabia, whose future would then be controlled by Germany. The leading Bolsheviks had differing ideas about how best to proceed. Lenin assessed the situation pragmatically and favoured a peace agreement at any price in order to stabilise the Bolsheviks' hold on Russia. Others were optimistic about a socialist revolution breaking out in war-weary nations across Europe, and that therefore, in the meantime, they should play for time. The German delegation were impatient, and were particularly keen for Ukraine to quickly gain independence, so as to ensure supplies of grain and ore to the central powers' continuing war effort. On the 9th of February, they signed a separate peace with Ukrainian officials who agreed to provide Germany and Austro-Hungary with bread in return for recognition of their independence from Russia. The leader of the Bolshevik delegation, Lev Trotsky, was furious and stormed out of the conference, but the truth was that he had no army capable of resisting the Central Powers. By February 1918, 
One million German and Austro-Hungarian troops were pushing eastwards and covered 240 kilometres in just five days. During their rapid advance, they made huge conquests, meeting almost no resistance as they conquered Latvia, Livonia, Estonia, Belarus and Ukraine, whose capital, Kiev, they occupied on the 1st of March. Two days later, the Bolsheviks capitulated and signed a treaty even worse than the one they had rejected. The Russian Empire lost around 2.5 million square kilometres of territory, with 50 million inhabitants, 90% of its coal mines, 54% of its industry, and a third of its agriculture and railways. The newly independent states of East Central Europe would be satellite states of Germany. Compared to life under Tsarist Russia, at least they would be able to build some of their own institutions. In addition, the Russians were expected to return provinces in the Caucasus to the Ottomans, which they had gained after the Russo-Turkish War of 1877 to 1878. In spite of these draconian terms, Lenin understood that the survival of his regime depended on external peace, which would buy him time to secure the dictatorship of the proletariat from internal enemies. One benefit of the agreement for the Russians was that the release of hundreds of thousands of prisoners of war back to the homeland, having been influenced by Bolshevik ideology, would be highly disruptive for the countries to which they returned, especially Austro-Hungary. Among those were Bela Kuhn, who set up the Party of Communists in Hungary and the future president of Yugoslavia, Josip Tito. The Treaty of Brest-Litovsk was a triumph for the Germans and they were now able to focus their military resources on the Western Front. For the first time, they enjoyed numerical superiority over their opponents and made plans for a decisive victory on the battleground, or at least a victory significant enough to force a peace on favourable terms. However, back on the German home front, after four harsh winters, a widespread hunger, political unity was fraying, and riots and strikes occurred across the country. The army had taken control of the economy, but it did not control Parliament, the Reichstag and its elected members still held the power to approve or withhold war credits. In the summer of 1917, these members demanded permanent reconciliation without forcible acquisition of territory. The German Chancellor, Bethmann Hollweg, was forced to resign. Parliament backed down and war credits were eventually granted. To counter the advocates of peace, the German High Command sponsored the launch of a new Fatherland Party to campaign for a tough line on any peace negotiations. They received much popular support and within a year numbered one and a quarter million members, a populist right-wing movement which foreshadowed things to come in Germany. Generals Hindenburg and Ludendorff were well aware that if a victory was to be achieved, it would have to be done soon. There were increasing signs of exhaustion and political dissent in Germany, and in particular Austro-Hungary, culminating in massive strikes 
in the cities of Vienna, Budapest and Berlin. The majority of the German forces deployed in the east had to remain so as to maintain order among the chaotic conditions there. But they were able to move 44 divisions to the Western Front, bringing their total to 99 divisions. Against these, the French could field about 100 divisions, the British 58, and none yet from the United States. Everything now depended on the success or failure of the German Spring Offensive in 1918. The German High Command realised it was a massive gamble, but one they were prepared to take, and still believed in the possibility of a decisive breakthrough. They hoped to push the British Expeditionary Force towards the English Channel, where it would be evacuated before dealing a decisive blow to the French. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The British command were feeling confident, even complacent. On the eve of the attack, General Sir Douglas Haig approved special leave for 88,000 troops and the Mibar Reserve was held back in Britain because of his assurances that he could withstand any attack for 18 days. Meanwhile, the German General Ludendorff launched raids and bombardments all along the front so as to obscure where the blow might fall. The Germans also concealed the attack zone by moving up infantry at night, covering ammunition dumps and battling to keep air superiority. The initial thrust was to be against the southern part of the line, east of the city of Amiens, then to draw in their reserves from the north, where a second blow would break through, so it was hoped, to the channel ports. Sir Douglas Haig, judging his left wing in the north to be the decisive front, had deliberately weakened the right. So when the Germans attacked there early in the morning of the 21st of March 1918, they enjoyed a huge numerical advantage, some 52 divisions against his 26. Operation Michael, as the Germans named it, began with a devastating artillery bombardment, directed as much against communications and command centres as against frontline troops. 65,000 guns fired on a 44-mile front, destroying all communications behind the lines and drenching the front line with gas and high explosives. The British command, with their communications disrupted, struggled to respond, made worse by dense fog, which reduced visibility to just a few metres. The main German infantry attacks 
began at around 9.40 in the morning, and the British could often not see them until it was too late. One eyewitness wrote of the ensuing chaos, Quote, the first attackers were into the trench long before the mist lifted. I was so occupied with the flanks that I barely saw them before they appeared out of the mist and leapt down into the trench. In a moment we were all mixed up in hand-to-hand fighting. I had two men come at me with their bayonets, one of whom I think I shot with my revolver, while a sergeant standing just behind me shot the other at point-blank range with a rifle barrel over my shoulder. But almost at the same second, a German stick bomb came whistling into the trench and killed or wounded practically the whole lot of us, English and German alike. End quote. All along the front, the British forward zone was overrun by German stormtroopers who pushed deep behind the lines, leaving any remaining senses of resistance to the follow-up troops. They pressed into the battle zone. This was where the main defence works were supposed to be, but a shortage of labour meant that they were not all ready for this kind of severe test, and the British also lacked the reserve forces to recover lost areas. The Germans, however, began to have increasing problems as the fog cleared. British batteries that had been held well back from the forward zone could now take their toll on the advancing enemy, and many Germans were caught in the open and sometimes found themselves engaged in local skirmishes. Casualties were immense on both sides. By the end of the first day, the Germans had lost between 35,000 and 40,000 casualties, of which up to 11,000 were dead. The British lost 7,512 dead, 10,000 wounded and 21,000 captured. The next day, the 22nd of March, there was a thick fog again and the Germans made further progress, breaking through at several points against the British 5th Army. As the 5th Army fell back, many of the isolated redoubts were left to be surrounded and overwhelmed by the advancing German infantry. The right wing of the British 3rd Army became separated from the retreating 5th Army, so also had to retreat to avoid being outflanked. The attack now threatened to separate the British from the French armies. If that happened, the British would have to fall back to the north along their lines of communication to the channel ports, while the French would have to withdraw to the south to cover Paris, leaving the way clear for the Germans to advance to the coast. All now depended on the French and British maintaining contact. It was the worst setback suffered by the British in the entire war and forced the Allies on the 3rd of April to overcome their internal rivalries by creating a joint supreme command under the French general Ferdinand Foch. Back in Germany, Kaiser Wilhelm was jubilant and was convinced that the battle was won and that the English had been utterly defeated. This optimistic view that victory was imminent also took hold on the German front, a critical factor in how Germany later understood its defeat. Meanwhile, however, the German advance was slowing to a halt. Their communications were overextended, artillery could not keep up with the pace of the infantry advance, and progress was difficult over the wasteland of the Somme battlefields. The general commander, Ludendorff, broke off the operations on the 5th of April and switched the attack to the north. Within a few days, the Germans captured ground to the west of Ypres, which the British had conquered the previous autumn. However, British resistance stiffened, and on the 3rd of April, Ludendorff called off the attack. 
with other German advances during Operation Michael were impressive, in reality they did not amount to anything decisive. The British were bruised, but not broken, and the conquered territory was a worthless wasteland, devastated by the last four years of fighting. Worse still, the Germans had lost some 240,000 men during the offensive, with particularly high casualty rates among the irreplaceable elite assault units. The British, on the other hand, could replace most of their losses with new recruits shipped across the Channel, to say nothing of the imminent arrival of the Americans. Ludendorff, increasingly erratic in the search anywhere for the necessary breakthrough, now turned to the French, and the sector he chose to attack was around the River Aisne, where Nivelle had launched his disastrous offensive a year earlier. In the Second Battle of the Marne, again the Germans used huge amounts of artillery and made significant advances. After taking the town of Chateau Thierry, German troops were once again, as in 1914, within reach of the French capital, where long-range artillery fire killed nearly 900 Parisians. Then came the French riposte. On the 18th of July, joined now by a large number of American troops, they struck the Germans hard at Soissons. The Allied tanks made a real difference, swarming over the battlefield, taking out German machine gun posts and assisting the infantry. The Germans could not withstand the pressure and fell back towards the River Aisne. Ludendorff was forced to face the fact that he no longer had the forces available to launch a viable offensive, and so would be forced back on the defensive. On top of the military losses, the first wave of the Spanish flu, a particularly aggressive influenza virus, reached the German lines in the summer. Initially, the virus affected Allied troops less severely than German ones. The German 6th Army in Alsace alone reported 10,000 cases per day during the first half of July. In total, over 1 million German soldiers fell ill between May and July 1918. The French counter-offensive on the Marne was followed by, on the 8th of August, a British attack outside the town of Amiens, which started what became known as the Hundred Days Offensive. Finally, the German defences started to crack as Allied forces advanced over seven miles on the first day, Canadian and Australian units achieving particular successes. German morale broke as they suffered 27,000 casualties, 15,000 of whom gave themselves up as prisoners of war. Over the next days, the British and French both continued to move forward, although, as usual, progress became more difficult as lines of communication became more stretched. Also, the Germans moved their reserves forward, stiffening the line and occupying the old trench lines that littered the whole Somme area. After three days, General Haig ordered the army to rest and to recover its strength. An advance of 12 miles had been achieved, but what really mattered was the severe body blow it had inflicted on the German army. Ludendorff described those days as the worst he experienced until the final collapse, shaken in particular by the mass surrenders of his troops. The next phase was one of piecemeal Allied advances until mid-September, which drove the Germans out of the remaining territory it occupied since March. 
The recaptures of historic towers and fortification complexes became weekly news items. The campaign was hard fought, with combat ranging from full-on assaults on defensive positions to bloody ambushes and frantic skirmishes. The war was in its last phase, but the casualties were still mounting fast. By early September, the British suffered losses of 190,000 and the French about 100,000. One event of note was on the 12th of September, when took place the first fully-fledged offensive by the Americans. It was a learning experience for the inexperienced American soldiers, who wisely leaned on French artillery and support. It was a relatively easy triumph for them, as the Germans had been preparing in any event to evacuate the lines, but the Americans did well to achieve their objectives. The Allies were keen to keep up the momentum and to try to achieve victory before winter set in. And on the 26th of September, they launched a general Allied offensive along the entire Western Front. My name is Card Rydert and you've been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. Feel free to leave comments on the Facebook page or you can write to me directly at carl, that's C-A-R-L, at historyeurope.net. It's always great to hear from you. In the next episode, which will be the penultimate of the whole series, I will be talking about the last battles of the First World War. It'll be entitled Endgame. I hope you can join me then. Until then, all the best and goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.